to be able to preach this morning. Um, we are on week seven of our course. For those of you that are visiting this morning, we're, doing, we're looking at the gospel. We're looking at uh, how we can be more effective in communicating the gospel to our friends and our family. And we've been doing a, a course called Gospel Shaped Outreach. And if you've got your manuals with you here this morning, um, we're on week seven. All right. So if you want to follow in the notes, week seven, if you'd like to make some notes, uh, please do so. Um, I was just um, thinking about our time away um, this week, and uh, you know, Den- Denmark officially is the happiest place on the planet to live. Did you know that? They, they do all these kind of uh, surveys. Uh, you got a s- signal, Andrew? You okay? Yeah. They, they do all these surveys. I don't know how they measure, but um, officially Denmark is the... Um, is the, the, the best place to live in the world with the highest level of um, satisfaction that people have and, and happiness. Um, it's also the most secular place in the world, one of the most secular places in the world. I find that quite interesting, uh, how, people value, uh, how people measure happiness. And uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about, appreciate about the church in Denmark is that people that are Christians, they really have to know what they believe and uh, live that out in a very demonstrable way because it's, it's such a secular place. Uh, if you're thinking about going there on holiday, take lots of money with you, right? Lots of money because it is incredibly expensive. Even if you have pounds, it is very, very expensive to eat out or to just do anything. So I paid uh, more than double that I thought I was going to pay for my accommodation through no fault of my own. But um, when, I, when I had to book at, a, at the last minute rate, I was like, this is what it cost me for my family to go away on holiday. This is ridiculous. Anyway, but it's a great place to um, live out the gospel. In the same way, you know, Germany, uh, I, think, I think we have this kind of image in our minds uh, as English people that has been, um, has been kind of formed by all sorts of uh, sitcom comedies about the Second World War. And we view Germans in a particular way. And we don't, we don't particularly like Germany either because Germany always beats us at football. And that's just like a bottom line given. And so, so people have this kind of image of Germany that's shaped by those two things. I just want to encourage you, Germans are the most amazing people. I, I, I've, every time I go there, I find joyful, happy, passionate believers in Jesus with a great sense of humor who love God with all of their hearts. And it's not, it's not strange to me that the greatest theologians in the world have come out of Germany. True. I think of Luther. I think of many, many other people who have thought about things in a very, very um, ordered way and have helped us to understand something of what the gospel is. I want to encourage you. We're going to be working as much as we can with, with Germans. <laughs> My friend Wayne is going to come here in, in January. He's from Dresden. He's a great guy. He's leading a, he, he, he took over a church of, uh, of about uh, less than 100 people 15, 20 years ago. It's grown to 800, 1,000 people. This is in East Germany, which was communist East Germany. All those are people that have got saved, eh? He's doing a great thing. And we need to link hands with people that are doing a great thing and be encouraged, all right? And so I, I want to speak to you this morning in, uh, out of that about how we can, what do we say when we're trying to communicate the gospel to people? And that's what we're looking at this week, um, in week, week um, seven. And remember, the, the, the reason for us doing this course is not to kind of learn a whole lot of techniques. I mean, some of the techniques that we can learn are helpful, but, but really, 
the reason that we're trying to learn together, and this really has been a thing of learning together, is that we simply want to share our lives in an effective way with our friends and our family. We, we want to share what Jesus has done for us with others. We want, we want to get better at doing that. And so from the very outset, we've said that's the reason that we're trying to do this. It's not to kind of get a whole lot of techniques to, to, um, to share the gospel. It's rather a heart thing of how can we better communicate the amazing thing that Jesus has done for us? How can we learn to communicate that effectively with other people in a relaxed way, in a in life-giving way? And that's really why, what, what we're um, trying to do. And, and last week... Clive wonderfully talked about involving prayer in our lives in a way that's effective to help us focus a little bit more on evangelism. You know, sometimes our, sometimes our prayer life can be, uh, God, I need a job. God, please help me. God, please heal me. God, please do this for my family. It's like a, a petition list, and we tick it off, all the stuff we want God to do for us. And the, and the whole point of last week was to say, how powerful in our prayer life is our desire to see people saved? to come to faith. Is, is that one of the priorities that we pray for on a weekly basis? God, I want to see my family saved. Use me in some way to help communicate your love to my family and my friends. And it's, so last week, it was just to try and realign our hearts around that part, so that we can make evangelism and pray for evangelism part of our lives, so that we are continually focusing our hearts outward in terms of what God wants to do. And I guess uh, we've also looked at a number of things uh, over these last seven weeks, but uh, some of us find evangelism easier. Some find it more difficult depending on our, our, our personalities. And I guess that for all of us, we don't want to mess up. We, we don't want to not portray um, Christ in a, in, in a way that's life-giving for others. And uh, sometimes our, um, our sort of passion and zealous, zealousness goes up and down, doesn't it? Sometimes we're really passionate and effective in our evangelism, and sometimes we are less so. And I don't know about you, but some of the things I've, I have experienced in my life is um, sometimes if you're trying to speak with someone who's a bit of a skeptic, who's been a skeptic for a long time, uh, you can be a little bit intimidated, and perhaps you feel that this person is more educated than you, or, or had a greater understanding in terms of some things in their life, and it intimidates you. Have you ever felt like that? I felt, I felt like that sometimes, um, uh, and you start the conversation all kind of like, you know, focused and energized, and by the time you finish the conversation, you feel a little bit deflated and like, oh, I didn't do such a good job, and perhaps I didn't help them to understand who Jesus is. And you can feel a little bit of a failure uh, as you're trying to witness for Christ. And I guess what they can do sometimes is that it, it kind of intimidates us to the point that we kind of stop talking because we think, well, it's, I don't want to fail again, so I, I won't risk it again. You know what I'm saying? And I want to encourage you that again this morning, that the whole reason of us trying to think about these things for the last six or seven weeks is to, to refocus ourselves on what the goal really is of, of evangelism. And the goal of evangelism really is simply just to glorify God by faithful, clear, bold witnessing about Jesus. That's our job. Our job is to attractively, as best as we can, with the best heart that we can, is simply speak to others about Jesus and what He's done for us. I, I want to say that to say this. Our job is not to, blind, to open blind people's eyes. Our job is not to soften hard hearts. 
That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes. Only the Holy Spirit can soften hard hearts. So I want to encourage you this morning is to realize what your job and my job is in the, in the, in the process of evangelism, and then to leave the other stuff to the Holy Spirit. He does it much better than we could ever do it. Our job is to prayerfully do what we do and to continually hold up those people in prayer and to ask God by the power of His Spirit as we, as we speak of the love of Christ that He will soften hearts, that He will open blind eyes, that people can come to faith. We have this amazing cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes I think we get too anxious about it because we think it's all up to us. It's not up to us. Our part of the equation is to faithfully speak about who Jesus is and what He's done for us. That's what we do, and we pray, and as we pray, we ask the Holy Spirit, and He opens eyes, and He softens hearts, and He draws all people. His kindness draws people to Himself, and He's the one that saves. I can't save one molecule of anyone's body. Only Jesus saves, and we have to point people to the one who saves. And so I want to remind you at the beginning of that of our time this morning, of that very simple thing. And then I want to look at a scripture with you, and I'm just going to pick out a couple of things from 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read the first eight verses. If you've got your Bible, take out your phone or take out your Bible. Can we read the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15? Which simply says this, and um, a little bit about the Corinthian church. Uh, this was one of the first churches that, that um, Paul planted. I think I've said this before. But the, the letters to Galatians and 1 Corinthians are probably the earliest letters, possibly James as well, the earliest letters that were written. And these, these letters were written within 20 years of Jesus dying, all right, and being resurrected from the dead, only 20 years afterwards. So they're the, most, the, the earliest account we have of the gospel and what people believed and what they inherited and what they wrote down. This is before the Gospels, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. These letters were written, okay? These are the earliest documents that we have of what the early church believed, taught, and how they lived, right? And so, uh, how, how many of you can remember what happened 20 years ago, Fa fairly accurately? Yeah, I can remember what I was doing 20 years ago. I know where I was, what I did, uh, who, I was, who I was friends with, and I can remember broadly some of the things that were life-changing to me. I could write them down. What is my point? My point is Paul, who's writing this letter, is writing only 20 years after the event, and he's actually writing down from memory things that he's seen and eyewitnesses have, that have seen these things, and he's urging us to believe eyewitnesses' accounts of what actually happened, right? So it's, we can be fairly confident as we read this letter that it's accurate. So 1 Corinthians 15 says this, verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to, to you as of first importance what I also received. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I received some things from the other apostles. I was faithful to what I received, and that what I received is the most important thing, and the most important thing I'm, I'm passing on to you as faithfully as I can. And he then defines that for the rest of these verses. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive. Again, this thing of eyewitnesses. He says, if you want to check it out, go and speak to them for yourself. They're still alive. Go and ask them what, what, what happened. And then he says, though some have fallen, have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also to the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So just like a little brief summary then of the last seven weeks, uh, just to remind us of all these things to bring the pieces together. So what do we know about the gospel in terms of what Paul is sharing here? Simply that it's good news. We've had a look at that. It's good news about what Jesus has done. Uh, that's what the word means. It's a message that must be proclaimed. It has to be proclaimed. And so I'm all for showing through our lives that we are Christians. I'm all for that. Absolutely. We need to do that. We must show people by how we live that we hold to something outside of ourselves that is holding us accountable to our lives. That is Jesus. That is the, the Father, our Father in heaven. Absolutely, I hold to that. But there must be a time where you say, where you speak, where you point people to the one that can say, do the same for them. All right, so that's what Paul's saying. He's saying it's good that we live, but we have, to, we have to speak this message. There comes a point where we have to speak the message of who Jesus is. And that's why Paul, in verse 2, do you notice he calls it a word? He said, for if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. He's talking about the message that he preached. He's talking about Jesus when he says that. And he says it's the most important thing. It must be received, and it's the way that people are saved. And so... Um, Having said that as the basis, can I then just, it might be helpful to say what the gospel is not. If that's what the gospel is, what is the gospel not? Okay, well, let me define it. It's not your feelings or your experiences. As, as wonderful as your feelings and your experiences are of what Jesus has done for you. When you are, when you are sharing with other people, your feelings and your experiences of what God done, done for you are helpful. They might paint a picture for people about who Jesus is. But your feelings and your experiences and your faith don't save anybody. I think sometimes we've, we've so encouraged people to share their testimony that subconsciously people think, well, my testimony, if it's a powerful testimony, is going to get this person saved. Your testimony cannot save anybody. Respectfully, kindly I say that. Your testimony doesn't save anyone. There's only one that, one that saves. His name is Jesus. The point of our testimony is to point the people to Christ, to the one that can save, the one that can forgive, the one that can make all things new. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So testimonies can be powerful. What God has done in your life can be powerful, but our testimonies can't change or transform anyone. Only the Holy Spirit can transform and change anyone as we point people to Christ. All right, so it's not your feelings, it's not our experiences, it's not your faith even, it's, it's not your testimony. It's not something, the gospel is not something that's happening now in a sense either. It's something that has happened already. It's not even what God is doing in our church right now, and it's exciting what God is doing in our church right now, but that's not the gospel. Are you with me? It's not even your obedience. The gospel is not your obedience. It's, the gospel is not loving your neighbor. All these things are a result of the gospel. All of these things are um, implications of the gospel, if I can use that word. But they are not the message. The message is Jesus. And that's what Paul says he points people to all the time. I point you to what I heard, first of all, which is the most important thing. I point you to Jesus, says Paul. So I want to encourage you, as you live your life, as you share um, your, your life with your friends and your family, remember, all those things are wonderful, what God has done for you. 
how he's changed your life, how he's transformed you. Perhaps he's taken your, uh, 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 your, your history and he's transformed it completely and you now have a wonderful future. I, 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 that's wonderful. I applaud all of that. But remember, that's not what saves people. What saves people is Jesus. Let all those things point to the one who is able to save. So in other words, I'm saying, as we think about what we need to say to people, if the gospel is not about your experience, it's about Jesus' experience. If the gospel is not about my life, it's about Jesus' life. If the gospel is not necessarily about what is happening now, it's about what has happened. It's historical, and we looked at that uh, over Easter. We looked at, at, at the resurrection being an historical thing that we can believe historically. And so the heart of the gospel then is this wonderful message we have in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's utterly essential for, to understand what that story means and what that story has done for us. So let's do all that we can to learn in a simple, effective, heartfelt way to communicate the story of Jesus and what the story of Jesus has done for us. And as we do that, we trust that God would save many and make that story plain to them. So remember what uh, Paul says in, in Romans. He says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. So we, 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 need, we need to bring the conversation to the point where we start to talk about Jesus so that people can be saved. And there's this wonderful substitution that we have talked about over Easter where all that uh, we deserved, Christ took upon himself. Uh, the anger of God, the wrath of God, and he took that upon himself. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for us that we might be free. And when God looks at me right now in heaven, you know, the, the, I love the, this, uh, the scripture that says the devil stands before the throne and accuses the saints. And you know what happens every time the devil accuses me in front of Jesus or accuses you in front of Jesus? Look at Anthony, lost his temper again, calls himself your son. Look at him, Lord. Hypocrite! You know what Jesus says? Not guilty. Doesn't excuse my sin. Doesn't say I mustn't control my temper. But in the court of heaven, not guilty. Once and for all, not guilty. When God looks at Anita and the devil comes to accuse Anita before the throne, what does Jesus say? You should have it by now. Not guilty. Same for Helen, same for Corbus, same for Neil. Everyone that puts their faith on their trust in Jesus by faith in the court of heaven is declared not guilty once and forever. This is the good news of the gospel. You are not saved according to your behavior. You are saved because you've put your trust in Jesus. And if I just have a little moment to get excited about the Reformation can I do that just for five minutes? Because it is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation right now, in October. This is what Martin Luther got very excited about. Because all his life he had been a good Catholic monk. And the, the Catholic Church was teaching that God does want to save you by grace, absolutely. But you must earn the grace of God before he can extend it to you. And so what does that mean? That means that you must show humility in your life. And you must show faith in your life. 
And when you do that, when you show faith and humility, then God, because of his covenant to us, he must extend grace to you. He's covenanted to do that. If you show, uh, mercy, if you show humility, if you show grace, uh, faith in your life, God will extend his grace to you and you will be saved. And so what did that lead to? That led to a whole theology of works. And so Luther would fast many times over, and he'd pray faithfully five times a day uh, as a good monk. And he said of himself, if anyone deserved to be saved by being a monk, it was me, because I was faultless. And that reminds me of Paul. Paul said, if anyone deserved to be saved by being a Jew, it was me, because I was faultless. And then he began to realize, I'm doing all this stuff, but you know, it's not changing. On the inside, it's not changing me. And so he, he started to read Galatians and Romans and came across this phrase, the righteousness of Christ. And it wasn't good news for him because he knew he could never attain the righteousness of Christ himself. He was trying so hard to do the right thing, and he just knew that as much as he tried to do the right thing, he could never get it right. And so there's this guy called Joseph Beale, who was a Roman Catholic like Luther, and he had this phrase, and he said, this is all we can do as Christians. Just try your best. That's what he said. Try your best, and perhaps God will save you. I want to say to you, for all of you that have been trying your best all your lives, I want to ask you to stop trying your best. Put your faith in the one who has done all that is needed. He has done his best for you. Stop trying to do your best. Stop trying to please God. Stop trying to work out your salvation. Put your faith in him. He has done all that is needed. And as you put your faith in him, you are declared not guilty. This is what Luther realized. He realized that the, the righteousness of Christ is a gift to us that God lavishes because he loves us. The righteousness of Christ is not my righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness that is given as a gift to me because I believe in him. And as I believe in him, his righteousness is imparted to me. And so that's why we're in the court of heaven right now. God says, and not guilty. And you know what I see on Ant's life? I see the righteousness of my son. Perfect righteousness from beginning to end. The righteousness of Christ, says Paul, which is from first to last. And it's a gift given to you and a gift given to me. Are you with me? This is good news. This is the gospel. This is what we have to help people to understand. Jesus died for us, and he died so that all that we deserved, he took upon himself. We were talking about this in our, in our culture, in our home group, and saying it's a really, really difficult thing to try and communicate this in a loving way to people when essentially our culture sees itself as not needing any salvation. <laughs> essentially, our, our culture says, we are all good people, aren't we? I mean... And so we have this kind of measure in our culture, like the really bad people. That's like Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan and all those guys over there. They, they, they're the really bad people. Me, I'm, I'm a good guy. I, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't killed anyone. I mean, I'm a good guy. Don't say that I'm not a good guy. I mean, I'm a good guy. I mean, you, come on, guys. You can see I'm a good guy. And so it depends where you measure, isn't it? So perhaps according, if I measure myself to Genghis Khan, perhaps I'm not so bad. But when I measure myself 
against the perfection of my Father in heaven, then I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Depends where you measure. And that's what the Bible says. All of us, you see, there's no, there's no um, hierarchy in, in, in God's kingdom. <laughs> all of us means all of us, every one of us in this room, have fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. Every single one of us, the gospel is equal for everyone. <laughs> there's, there's no discrimination in the gospel. All of us have fallen short. Every single one of us. And all of us need the righteousness of Christ to impart it to us to transform our lives. Are you with me? This is what we need to try and helpfully, lovingly communicate in a way that brings life to others. We've all missed the mark, but Jesus has taken all that was required and fulfilled perfectly everything that God needed in order that his righteousness might be imbued and imparted to us. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he, is made, he made him to be sin who knew, so, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There we have it. That's what Luther understood. That's what transformed the last 500 years of church history. We have this righteousness of Christ which is given to us as a gift. And so Paul basically is reminding these Corinthians that because of the cross, our sin, shame, and guilt, all of that was placed on Christ and that our Father made him to be sin. He never sinned himself, Jesus, but he took upon himself all of that stuff that we might be declared not guilty in the court of heaven. Why did he do that? Well, we answered it here, so that we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God in him. He has a thought for you. Every sinner, every single one of us, through faith, receive every blessing that was due to Jesus. We receive that. That's what the gospel says. That's what the gospel teaches. Isn't that an incredible thing to think about for a moment? Because you are in Christ, the promise to you is everything that was due Jesus because of his perfect obedience to the Father, everything that was due him is now bestowed upon you and is a blessing for your life. That blows my mind. Every good thing that Christ deserved because of his perfect obedience to God the Father is now given to you and me because we are in him. What good news is that? Or don't you think it's good news? Man, this is good news. So everything culminates in the obedience of Jesus where he satisfies God's wrath, he fulfills the law, he takes our guilt, he takes our sin, and he, in exchange, we receive all that was due him. We receive ourselves. And remember what um, Ed did so wonderfully with a little promise stone when, when we celebrated Easter and we came around the, 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 the cross and we thought about all the promises that are ours in Christ. Do you remember? I encourage you, go and listen to that message that Ed preached on Easter Sunday. All the promises of God, and we read them all off, and there were dozens and dozens of these promises are all now mine and yours because of Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. What amazing grace. What wonderful, wonderful power 
that he wants to bless us with. And so I've said already, just to remind you, you can be confident the gospel is historical. It's something that happened. The story which we believe and written down in all the letters and in Acts and in the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is historical. If you want to refresh yourself in that, go and listen to some of the podcasts again. And we know, we know from um, history that this letter, Corinthians, like I said, was only written 20 years after, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead in about A.D. 54, A.D. 55. How do we know that? Because we know that all, all, all the Jews were expelled from Rome because the Romans were so irritated that the Christians and the, and the Jews were fighting with each other. They expelled all the Jews and said, okay, leave Rome. We know the date that that happened. And Priscilla and Aquila, they arrived in, in, uh, in Corinth in A.D. 50. Go and read the book of Acts, A.D. 50, and they started a business. And then Paul met them in Corinth, and he wrote this letter within two or three years of that. So we're fairly confident we know that it must be A.D. 50, 55, somewhere around there. And so the, the significance of that is that we can believe what the Bible says with confidence. And I want to point you again to what Paul says about all the witnesses that you, you could, uh, these Corinthians could go and speak to themselves to verify what he was saying. And he's challenging them, in a sense, to prove him false. And so he was saying, if you've got any doubts about what I'm saying, go and speak to the people that were eyewitnesses to what happened. And in the same way, I would encourage you and I that we can be confident in what God has given us through his words, and on a, a historical basis, we can believe these things which are true. I, I, I've, as you know, I've been studying this year. Do you know the gospel, uh, the, the, the Bible, is the most researched book ever? There are more documents written about the Bible, uh, more than any other book that we have in history, by far, thousands more. And so people will believe um, the things about Julius Caesar because it's history. And actually that story has maybe... Um, five or six references that we can believe from history that Julius Caesar actually did that, that he actually crossed the river and crossed the Rubicon and all those things that we take for granted. And at the same time, there are thousands of documents, thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, you can go to any library and search for yourself, thousands of documents that, that prove the historical record of what the Bible says, and people say, I won't believe because it's not historically accurate. What absolute intellectual hypocrisy. Believe some stuff about Julius Caesar because five people verified it. Won't believe about Jesus when thousands of documents verified. Go and read for yourself. Go to the Bodleian Library and read for yourself. Don't listen to all this junk that people just spew out. I want to, sorry, I'm getting a little bit of a rave right now, but <laughs> this junk that you read on the internet and you all, we all suck it up, and we believe it. And it's not verified by anyone. That's the great tragedy for me of the, of the, of the Internet. People with very little sense who have not read anything put their, their opinion on the thing, and everyone believes it and sucks it up. <laughs> Let us be Christians that are loving God with our minds. That think a little bit. That actually don't say, oh, those people were dead thousands. Of, what, what, what do they have to say to me? Those people that have been dead for thousands of years. My friends, the more I read people that have been dead for thousands of years, the more I realize this. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. 
We think we are so clever with our ideas that have, that have lasted all these years. And aren't we scientific? And when I read some of the stuff that, that um, the early church fathers were battling with, it's exactly the same stuff. We can learn from everybody. Okay? I'm not angry, all right? <laughs> My wife is looking concerned in the front row. When our eyes get bigger than normal, then I know, okay, just calm down. Just calm down. Okay, so I'm nearly done. Thank you. And the gospel, Paul says, the gospel is to be believed. And so the Bible speaks about two things, repentance and faith. And when we're explaining to other people, we have to help them to understand that. And it's very simple. Repentance, biblically, just means changing your mind. It means that you didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he is. Now you've changed your mind, and you do. That's what repentance is. It's as easy as that. It's as simple as that. It's just to change your mind. And so as we witness to people and love on people, we're trying to bring them to the point of seeing that there does need to be a change of mind. And that's the power of the message. Because once you change your mind, the change of heart also is the result of that. And that, what, that, that change of heart brings a change of direction in your life. That's why we can all say, I was going this way, and then Jesus found me. He tra- transformed me, and now I'm going this way. <laughs> I'm going in a completely di- different direction. My life could have gone there, and now it's going here. Why? Because of the message of Jesus and how he transformed me. And so in a very real sense, we're asking people as they do that, that they realize that they are putting the authority of their life under someone else. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And so I'm not the final authority in my life anymore. He is. And so it's not my will be done. It's Jesus, what is your will for me? What is your will for my family, for my wife? What would you have me do? These become very significant prayers and thoughts when we have really put our faith in Jesus. When we really have said, yeah, you you are the authority in my life. God, what do you want me to do with my time? How do you want me to live? What do you want me to value? These take on completely new perspectives when we have realized that our authority is no longer me, but Him. Amen? And so, faith is not some vague feeling. You know, we need to take a leap of faith. It's like Kierkegaard, you know, just experience something, feel something. Uh, take, take a leap of faith in this vague kind of way, and, and you're kind of pleasing God. Now, Christian faith is not like that. It's not a vague feeling. It's an absolute confidence and trust in what Jesus has done. And our confidence and trust in what Jesus has done is based on history, not on your feelings. What's the problem if you base everything on your feelings? Well, if you're like me, I feel good one day, and perhaps the next day I don't feel so good. And if my, if my faith is based on what I feel, <laughs> then my relationship with God just goes, it's like a roller coaster. What's the point of that? How's that helpful to my, my family? How's that helpful to those that I love? It's not helpful. Do you hear what I'm saying? Our faith is not vague feelings. Our faith is, is absolute trust on the history of what Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection. And that's where our confidence comes from. And so when we're evangelizing, I simply want to finish by saying this. 
God honoring, speaking to others about Jesus doesn't depend on our cleverness. It doesn't depend on how educated we are. It doesn't depend on how clever we are in saying about what God has done about our lives, in our lives. God honoring, speaking about Jesus is simply a matter of faithfulness. I find that incredibly liberating because I don't always get it right. I don't always speak in a way that is, I, I, I try to, but sometimes I don't get it right. But it doesn't depend on my cleverness. I faithfully just need to speak about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit uses even my feeble attempts to show people who Jesus is. Are you with me? I want to encourage you. Don't get put off. Faithfully, just simply, in a God-honoring way, speak about Jesus to your friends and family, and I and I promise you, we will see much fruit come from that as we go forward together. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Him. Let's use our testimony. Let's use all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's He who saves, and only He can save. Only He can soften hearts. Only He can draw people to Himself. Amen?